Joshua, and I'm one of the elders here at Prairie View. And uh, every six or seven weeks, Pastor Ben takes a week out of the pulpits to focus on some of the other aspects of being a senior minister, and that gives Jeff and I the chance to fill in on his behalf. And ordinarily, that would happen. Excuse me, I'm disoriented. Okay. Almost. Stuff everywhere. Okay, ordinarily, that would happen in the middle of a sermon series. And so Jeff or I would preach whatever would happen to come next in whatever book it was that we were studying. But this week, there's a gap. We finished seven weeks in Nehemiah last week, and Ben did not want to start our Christmas series before Thanksgiving. And so he left it up to me to choose what to preach. And the only guidance he gave me was uh, it might be nice if it had something to do with Thanksgiving. And I said, don't worry, got it covered. People always give thanks when I'm done preaching. So uh, let's um, go to the Lord in prayer so that we can have something to be thankful for this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the ways that you've blessed us. I thank you that you have given us your word that we can uh, find you in. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that our time studying uh, what you've given us this morning from the book of Malachi would be time well spent. My preparation would not have been in vain and that you would be opening the uh, ears and hearts of your people to hear what you would have them hear this morning. In the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Grab a Bible and turn to table of contents. One of the things that I am passionate about, relatively passionate as a church leader, is that people be able to know how to read this book. Uh, this book is how we know God and what it means to walk with him. And yet it can be a big, uh, confusing, intimidating, challenging book because, first of all, it's 66 books and it's divided into two sections, and there are quite a variety of different literary forms in this book. So uh, you can get yourself in real trouble if you try to read the prophets and the Proverbs and the Apostles in exactly the same way, because they're not meant to be read in the same way. And simple unfamiliarity can be an obstacle to reading and understanding and applying God's Word. So if you look at your table of contents, you will see, should see, that Nehemiah is the 16th book in the Old Testament. Now, who is ready for a trick question? Who doesn't love a good trick question, right? Designed to make you look stupid, like the best ones do. How many books are there between Nehemiah and Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament? How many books between Nehemiah and Matthew? Now, if you are counting and you count 23, very good. You've counted correctly. Your kindergarten teacher would be pleased, but you would be wrong. Because there is really only one book that comes between Nehemiah and Matthew. In the chronological order in which things actually happened, in the order of the uh, drama of God and his people, there's one book between Nehemiah and Matthew. And that's because the Old Testament is not arranged in chronological order. It's arranged according to literary form. So you've got the narrative history books, uh, 16 or 17 of them, from Genesis through Nehemiah, Esther, and there in order. And then you have the wisdom writings, Psalms and Proverbs, and those are sort of more or less in order. And then you've got the prophets, Isaiah through Daniel, Hosea through Malachi, and they go in order as well. So at the same time, you've got the narrative history going through the story of God's people. You've got the prophets, God's messengers to his people on the same parallel track, and it is exceedingly useful to read them together because they help you understand one to the other. It's like reading a proper newspaper. You can, not like the Fisher's Topics, but like a real newspaper. Think Wall Street Journal. You've got a news section where there are articles about what happened, and you can read them all and know what's going on, but not necessarily understand their meaning or significance. And there's the editorial opinion pages, and you can get all sorts of opinions 
on all sorts of things from different people, but it's all sort of abstract. And it's only when you read them at the same time, read them together, that you can be well-informed. This is what happened, and this is why it matters. Now, very of you, the Old Testament was written 2,500 years ago, but you want to be well-informed about what's going on there. We just finished studying Nehemiah for seven weeks, and Ben summed it all up for us last week. Revival is more than events and activities and organization. It is an ongoing process and posture of repentance in the heart. So we saw the people came back from exile. They built the wall. They dedicated the wall. They made a fresh covenant. They rejoiced. They celebrated. Everything was great. End of chapter 12. Everything is wonderful. Big, happy ending. And then you get chapter 13. And the book ends with a big thud because it's bad news. This is the bad stuff that happened, and this is what Nehemiah had to do about it. And it's like reading a news report. This week, we're going to do Malachi, which is God's editorial about why that's a problem. What does it mean for his relationship with his people, and what is God going to do about it? Malachi is the book of God's unfinished business with his people. So take one last look at your table of contents. Take note of the page on which Malachi starts and turn to that, because we're going to start there shortly. Now, I can imagine some of you thinking that if you don't read the editorials in your own city, in your own lifetime, then why would you care about a 2,500-year-old editorial from a nation that isn't yours? What does it really matter what God's opinion of Nehemiah 13 really is? And if I've done my part in the sermon and you do your part this morning, then over the next half hour, you'll see that God's people in 400 B.C., and God's people in November 2013 have quite a lot in common. The three big sins of Nehemiah 13 were in the areas of time and money and relationships. Do people in Hamilton County struggle with time, money, and relationships? I've had some stress the last few weeks. Not much of it came from outside of time, money, and relationships. I did have some trouble at a Starbucks placing an order because there's an eggnog brulee, the eggnog latte and the caramel brulee, latte, and appetite control, and it wasn't time, money, and relationships, and it was a problem. But we're not here to talk about me this morning. We're here to talk about you and your problems. So if you're having trouble doubting the relevance of this material, then let me remind you of a few things about God's people and ask yourself, are these things more true of Israel in the Old Testament, or are they more true of the New Testament age, the church, our time? Ask yourself, that as I go through these things. More true about Israel or more true of us? As sinners, God's people have no business being in a covenant relationship with the holy God. Yet God sets his love upon us and brings us into a relationship with himself. God makes, brings us into a relationship with himself. Good grief, my English. Okay. God makes promises to his people, but he fulfills them gradually and he works through his people over time. He uh, the people are never fully faithful to what God has called them to, and yet God continues to work through them over time. The world continues to be wicked and hostile, and yet God delays final justice. But the people must be patient and faithful, diligently pursuing their relationship with God in the meantime, and they will be tempted to pursue that relationship by means of checking the boxes, doing the things they're supposed to do. So we need to keep on looking forward. God's people keep on looking forward to what he has yet to accomplish, and when God has finished his work in his people, they will not be disappointed. That is the story of God's people from Abraham through today and beyond. God's people placing their faith in a God who has not finished 
working yet. He's not finished working in us and through us. And what God, what God says to Israel matters very much to us. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to have three key themes from, first we're going to have three key themes, and then second we're going to go through these seven sections of the book of Malachi, and then three take-home instructions at the end. Three themes, seven sections, three instructions. And above all of that is the big picture of Malachi, which frankly is the big picture of the Bible, that God is gathering for himself a people to be his holy and treasured possession, to be made in his own image, and as far as Malachi is concerned, in his own time. That's going to be Malachi's special emphasis. The three key themes of Malachi are the covenant of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord. Those three things keep popping up. No matter what God is addressing, no matter what charge he's making against the people, those three things keep popping to the surface. So first, the covenant of the Lord. Covenant is one of those words that is a Bible word. We don't use it in our everyday language, and yet we need to have it in our vocabulary if we're going to understand how God relates to his people. I think we all know what a a friendship is, a personal union, a personal bond of mutual commitment and protection fondness and affinity and affection. And yet we all know that even the best and deepest of friendships can fade over time unless they are properly maintained because people move, people grow, people change, and friendships fade. Now consider a different kind of relationship. Consider a contract, a legal bond of protection and commitment that is based on the exchange of goods and services and payments. It's quite different than a friendship. I do something for you, you do something for me, and if it ever doesn't work out for either one of us, we can call it off according to the terms of the contract. We know the difference between a friendship and a contract. Comcast and I, we're not friends. I give them payments, they give me services most of the time. They're supposed to. They try to take it away every four years during the World Cup. They say, oh, two weeks, it's going to be out. Comcast and I are not friends. Eric Roseberry and I do not have a contract. We have a friendship, except for when our teams are playing each other. There's nothing we can do about that. We all know the difference between a friendship and a contract. A covenant combines the best elements of those two. It is personal and it is legal. It's based on affection and it carries standards of behavior. Marriage is a covenant. It is a personal personal and legal union of commitment and protection based on affection and carrying expectations of behavior. That's what a covenant is, and that's how God relates to his people. Over and over in Malachi, he reminds them, I have made a covenant with you. I have voluntarily entered into a legal and personal union based on my affection, my love for you. I have set my love upon you. And these are the promises, these are the things I'm going to do for you, and this is how I would like you to honor me in your life in return. God is a covenant-making God, and he is a covenant-keeping God. Now, the second theme in Malachi is going to be the fear of the Lord. Fear is the response of the emotions and the mind and the body to a threat. We fear the barking dog is going to bite us. We fear the bean counters are going to lay us off. We fear the Colts offense is going to forget to show up and score 25 points in the fourth quarter. We fear that we're going to be stuck at the kids' table forever at Thanksgiving because your aunts and uncles just won't make space at the adult table the way they should. What does it mean to fear God in the context of a covenant relationship with a loving Heavenly Father? In that context, we fear to 
disappoint God. We fear to let him down. We fear to dishonor his name and make him look bad. We fear that we're going to fail him again and again. The fear of the Lord goes beyond simple obedience or else and into the realm of honor and esteem and faithfulness. We can understand what it is to fear God by looking at Malachi 1 and seeing the opposite. What God says is the opposite of fearing. He uses language like, you have despised my name. You have profaned my covenant. You have snorted at my commandments. Believe it or not, God does not like it when you snort at his commandments. Go figure. That leads to the third key theme, which is the attended results of the first two, the glory of the Lord. When God enters into a covenant with us, sets his love on us, and we fear him and honor him and esteem him in return and follow him from the heart and act like we really are his people, when that happens, God is glorified. When we find our satisfaction and wholeness in our relationship with him, that says to us, to him, and to everybody that he is a great God and worthy of all praise. And that's not just the theme of Malachi. That is, frankly, the theme of the whole book. God is gathering a people to be his holy treasured possession in his image, in his time, for his own glory. So watch for those three themes, covenant, fear, and glory, as we go through Malachi, starting chapter 1. The first section is uh, the first five verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and God starts by saying, I have loved you. I have loved you, God says. That's how he chooses to begin this address. And it's not based on their lovability and wonderfulness. God, in verses 2 and 3, roots his love of the people on a sovereign choice that he made out of mercy, without regard to merit, choosing Jacob over Esau. Twin boys. Esau was the older, the rightful heir, the logical candidate, the better brother. But God says, no, I'm going to choose to set my love on the younger, the lesser, the undeserving. Jacob, I'm going to change his name to Israel. Esau, I'm going to not choose, pass over disregard, let Esau go his own way and leave him to his own devices, and that goes badly for Esau. But when God establishes his covenant, it's with the people of Jacob, the children of Israel. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord Loves you. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. You shall, therefore, be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Notice the logic. I have loved you, therefore, I have loved you and set my love upon you. And I am faithful, so please obey me. That love is given to the people of Israel based on his sovereign choice to be merciful. And loving. And that's what he's reminding them of as he starts this book. Now, based on the circumstances that the people were in, they would have had a hard time taking this seriously. By the days of Malachi, the covenant had been in place for a thousand years. God had promised them a land, He had promised them His presence. He had promised them that they were going to be a great nation and that all the peoples of the earth were going to come to them in their city to meet God. God had also promised them and threatened them that if they rebelled against him, he would punish them and discipline them, but also promised to bring them back afterwards. And that's what happened. The kingdom of David was great, and it was vanquished. The temple of Solomon was beautiful, and it was destroyed. The people had been respected, and now they are despised. They have returned from exile to a small city with a humble temple and a meager wall. And 
They had, they, they were owned by a foreign empire. They were few in number, and their space, the space of the land of the people of Israel, was smaller than Hamilton County. God had promised them greatness, and now they were thinking, is this it? Is this it? Is this what God had in mind? Is this the fulfillment of his promises? Is this what his great and enduring and steadfast love has accomplished? Sometimes I think we wonder the same thing as we look at our lives. Is this what God has in store for me? Why is it that I followed Christ again? And God begins by saying, I have loved you. I have made a covenant with you. I have set my love upon you, and maybe you're not doing your part, but I'm still doing mine. I'm still at work in you. And as we used to say around here quite a bit, the best is yet to come. Now, God then lays out three charges against his people, areas where they are falling short. The second, third, and fourth sections of the book. Chapter one, their worship is deficient. Beginning of chapter two, the leaders are falling short. And finishing chapter two, they are being unfaithful in their marriages. Chapter one. Deficient worship. Prior to the coming of Christ, the people offered daily sacrifices, which were pointing them forward to the time when Christ would come. But in this day, they were offering the worst animals, the lamest, cheapest, sickest animals they could find. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? The principle here is the genuineness of our worship. Are we offering God our first and best, or are we giving him our leftovers? The time that we give God, is it our freshest hours? Are we honoring him in the way that we use our time and energy and money and resources that he has entrusted to us? Second section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Second charge, third section of the book. Priests and Levites were not fulfilling their responsibilities as the religious leaders of the community. Priests and Levites were supposed to educate the people in the ways of God and provide a civil administration of law and justice. And there was a time, it seems, when that had gone very well. This is what the Lord says in chapter 2. My covenant with Levi, talking about the community of priests and Levites, priests and Levites, my covenant with Levi was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. The people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenants of Levi. The leaders were not fulfilling their responsibilities to God and to the people. The third charge is in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. The people were being faithless in marriage. That was happening in two specific ways. First, the people were marrying outside of the nation of Israel. And this was not a racial problem. This was a worship problem. The people were choosing spouses that did not worship God. And so, surprise, they were being led astray. And the children of those families were being lost And the same thing goes for us. Christians are to marry in the Lord. Because if you marry somebody that does not share your deepest convictions about God, then you are in for a world of trouble. And it is the exceptions that prove the rule. Worse, in this day, in this time, it seems like the people were um, divorcing their first Jewish wives in order so that they could go out and marry the uh, ladies of the land, the foreign ladies instead. Not only were they breaking the community covenants to do this, but they were 
breaking their own marriage covenants to do this. And God says to them, I hate divorce. That comes from Malachi chapter 2. And one of the interesting and sad features of this book is that we know how the people responded to it over time, over generations. God calls them to honor him with their hearts, and some individuals do. But as a whole, the people developed a pattern of observing the law with strict regulations while ignoring the heart of God. We call that religion. Strict regulations to keep the rules while ignoring God's heart. And after the time of Malachi, 400 years go by, and it's a busy time period. It's the time period where we get the Maccabees and the story of Hanukkah. But 400 years go by, and there's no word from the Lord. And so by the time Jesus shows up and we have the gospel accounts, they give us a window into what the people have done with God's plea over these 400 years. So Jesus shows up in the temple in Matthew 21. And in order to protect the integrity and purity of the animals being sacrificed, they developed quite a system. And it was a scam at the expense of the people. Temple-approved animals only. Temple-approved currency only. It was a racket. And it had nothing to do with worshiping God. Jesus, in his righteous indignation, cleaned all that stuff out of the temple because they had reduced worship to checking boxes, doing the things that they were supposed to do at the expense of a right relationship with God. The leaders, second charge, the leaders had been charged with um, failing in their responsibilities to teach and apply the law to the people of God. So they responded by developing the rabbinical system with rabbis and disciples, and that developed into different parties and sects. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the different priestly houses, and it was a mess. And in Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes them in the strongest terms for heaping burdens on the people and leading them astray, failing to properly care for them. And what do the people do with God's call that they be faithful in their marriages? Well, of course, they set up legal regulations that allowed them to ignore the heart of purity and faithfulness that God was calling them to. Matthew 19, the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus and ask him, what's the minimum standard that we need to divorce our wives? And Jesus says, no, no, God is faithful. God has loved us. God is faithful. God has joined a husband and wife together. And don't separate that. Do not separate that. Now, are there exceptions? Yes, of course, exceedingly narrow ones. And we don't get to decide on our own behalf what the exceptions are. God's love for us is faithful. It is steadfast and enduring. And so, husbands, we love our wives with a faithful, steadfast, enduring love. Even if, like God, we get a thousand years of grumbling and complaining and rebellion in return. And is that hard? course, it's hard. You're married to another selfish sinner, just like you. So that's always going to be hard. I love my wife, bless her heart. But when we go on vacation and she wants to plan out every minute of our daily schedule, and I'm supposed to be happy about it and rejoice in the orderliness of our calendar on the cruise, that's a problem. Now, that's a small thing, and we can joke about it. And her name is Erin. But... Uh, <laughs> She helped me write this section. I'm not, I'm not piling on her here. The point is, this is a small thing, and some of you are facing much, much more significant marital stressors than that. The point is, loving your spouse the way God has loved his people. Sets his love upon us and, and is faithful to his covenant, and that is what we have been called to as well. And it does not come naturally, but it's something that God empowers us to do, and he is exceedingly glorified when we honor his name in the way that we love our wives and husbands. So, 
After those three charges against the people, the book takes a turn and uh, things start to shift a little bit. The next section is 2 verse 17 through chapter 3 verse 5. The people are impatient with God's justice. The wicked prosper and God isn't setting things right. God responds with something completely unexpected. Chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek. You seek the Lord of justice, the Lord whom you seek, he will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? You want the God of justice. Well, I am on my way. I am on the move and I will come to you. I will send my messenger beforehand. And then suddenly I will come to my temple and I will be upon you and ask yourself, is that really what you want? For who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap what does a refiner do he refines and what does a refiner use to do the work of refining burning hot fire it is not an easy process especially for the metal what does a fuller do a fuller does the laundry he makes dirty clothes clean and what does he use to do this frou-frou all natural lavender scented Aloe infused cocoa butter, hand cream with essential oils? No. No, he uses lye. L Y E. Caustic, toxic lye. And that is what the fuller uses to clean the clothes. And what is the end result of that long, hard, laborious, painful process? Beautiful, pure, shimmering gold and sparkling, radiant, clean garments. God is at work in his people to make us like Christ. And that is work worth doing and we are glad of it when it's finished but the tools that he uses are burning fire and harsh soap the people are complaining that god isn't at work against sin and he says i'm working i'm starting with you now what about all those people who do not fear god who have rejected the covenant through either rebellion or through religion and who care more for their own glory than for god's what about all the others people that are not being talked about in the covenant of God. Verse 5 addresses them. The same God who is sending fire to refine his people comes against those who reject him with a fire of destruction. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. This is sin as a pattern of life, the cherished object of the soul. This is not saying that every person who's ever lied or lusted is doomed, but it is saying that the person who is not at war against their sin is at war against God, and no opposition against God can stand. If you are in that position where you know that you're a sinner and you are not right with God, but you'd like to be right with God while you have the opportunity, we would love to talk to you about that after the service. And God wanted to talk to his people about that, continuing into the sixth section of the book, verses 6 through 15 of chapter 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. This Lord who has the refining fire and the destroying fire, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, that I set my love upon, that I made a covenant with, therefore, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you. How do you return to God? How do you demonstrate repentance? How do you show that your change of heart is real? 
by demonstrating a change in priorities. For these people, God told them what that was going to mean. It was going to mean one specific thing, tithes and contributions. Of course, you know, hey, wait a minute. Isn't that a little bit obnoxious of God? Isn't he afraid that people are going to think he's just after the people for their money and they, they want to return and repent? And the first thing he says is, get out your wallet and, and give me what I'm due. Well, this goes a little bit further than simple fundraising. God doesn't need his people's money. First, he's saying, get rid of the idols in your heart. These people, like us, love money and what it can provide. And God says, me first. You put me first and everything else comes lower. Second reason that it's bigger than simple fundraising is this. What were the tithes and contributions for? Verse 10 so that there may be food in my house. Now, the poor needed charity always. But what this specifically has in mind is that the priests and Levites, in order to be the leaders, the religious leaders of the community that people need, they needed to be able to have support to do that. They could not fulfill their responsibilities if they had to go home, go back to the fields and get a job so that they could feed their family. The tithes and offerings, like Carl said, are not for building huge, lavish buildings and big, fat budgets. They're for meeting the basic ministry needs of the congregation. By robbing God of tithes and offerings, the people were robbing themselves of the teaching and training of the Lord and condemning their children to ignorance and idolatry. Ignorance because there was going to be no priests or Levites to teach them the ways of the Lord, and all that they were going to learn was what they could pick up at home. And what they were going to pick up at home was that money and self is more important than God and his people. Of course, this led to more religious boxes for the people to check off. Heavy religious taxes. When Jesus saw the widow put her two last coins into the collection box, the mandatory collection box, he condemned the religious leaders who had made that mandatory and were accused of devouring widows' houses. They had built a huge and beautiful temple, and its foundation still stands in Jerusalem today. But instead of being for the people's good, And for the glory of God, it was oppressive. Final section of the book. End of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. Some continue to resist God and accuse him of injustice and treachery. Others feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Chapter 3, verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Chapter 4. The day is coming, burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. But you, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Israel had been wondering, is God done with his plan? Has everything been accomplished? Is this small city with its small temple and its small wall all that God had in mind? And God gives them a resounding no. I am still at work. I am coming. I am continuing to work among my people. And one day the sun of righteousness will rise on you and there will be healing. I am not finished yet. And that's very good news. Because if there's one thing that we can learn from the Old Testament and from our lives, it's that the law cannot change people on the inside. By our nature, we are not able to keep the covenant to God's satisfaction. We need a new nature. We need divine external intervention and the lord knew that he worked within the context of the old covenant for a thousand years to bring his people to the point where they realized they had to realize we cannot do this on our own and he does the same thing for us to bring us to the point where we cannot do it on our own god made demands in the old testament that only he could meet 
He made promises that only he could fulfill. And in the New Testament, in the cross of Christ, God met those demands and kept those promises in a way that only he could. So what do we do now? How do we respond to the lessons of the book of Malachi? Two answers come straight from the text, and the third comes from taking a step back and looking at the big picture. First, chapter 2, verse 2. Take it to heart to give honor to God's name. It's not a matter of modifying your behavior to meet the expectations of your parents, spouse, or your church. It's about honoring God from the heart, serving and embracing Jesus with your whole soul, trusting in his work to keep the law and to make you pure from the inside out. Second, chapter 3, verse 7. Return to God. Whatever has gotten in the way between you and God, dispose of it. New Year's resolutions are still five weeks away. So now is the time to start practicing. Whatever adjustments you need to make in your schedule or your budget or your lifestyle, your patterns, your friends, your order at Starbucks, whatever it is you need to change, this is the time to make it. You won't wish that you'd waited any longer and you'd wish that you'd done it sooner. It's never too early. Test me in this, God says. Pursue me. Forsake your distractions and see whether or not I disappoint you. Third, finally, what is the proper response to being brought into a relationship with God and having him set his love upon us with mercy and being pursued by him for our good? The proper response is praise and thanksgiving. So this week, of course, we can be thankful for all that God has given us, but we can be especially thankful that he has given us himself. He has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you a part of one of the songs that we sang earlier. At my request, we did a Christmas carol uh, before the proper time, and it quoted, the reason I asked for Jeff Jeff to do that is it quotes directly from chapter 4 of Malachi. Hark, the herald angels sing. Pay attention. The angels have announcements to make. Hail, the heavenly prince of peace. Hail, the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing In his wings. That's chapter 4, verse 2. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give us second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have shown your light upon us in your word. Thank you that you have given us the light of the knowledge of of your glory, the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul said. Thank you that you have given us your word so that we can know you, and thank you that you have given us your word so that we can know ourselves and know how badly we stand in need of a Savior. Thank you for bringing us to the place where we realize we cannot do this on our own. Thank you for sending your Son, not just to pay for all the wrongs that we have done, and not just to keep the law on our behalf, but to change us on the inside so that we can honor you. We can walk in the fear of you and in awe of you and live a life of worship that brings glory to you and your name. Give us a love for your word and for your people and for your son above all things. In whose name we pray, amen.